0: Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, City Church. How we doing? I am not who you probably expected to see, but my name is Pete. So, uh, my name is Pete Bulette, and I'm the director of Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship at the University of Virginia. I see some familiar faces and some that are less familiar, but it's my joy to bring God's word to us today. That's the first time I've seen the buffer, and I've always wondered what the fruit was that uh, was eaten at the fall, and now we know it was an apple. Um, So, you may want to get rid of your Apple phones. Anyways, there's a bite out of it. I'm just kidding with you. I'm just kidding with you. (laughs) no agenda. Um, Anyways, it is my joy to uh, bring God's word to us this morning. I I do want to say something that I just want to put this disclaimer out. The uh, leadership of the church has no idea I'm going to say this. They did not ask me to say this. They don't know I'm going to say this. I'm going rogue for a moment, okay? But I just want to... commend and thank the leadership of City Church for the outstanding job I feel like they've done leading us through this pandemic. So can we just take a moment and give thanks to them? Yes, yeah, so we are honestly so, so grateful. This is such a trying and difficult season to lead any organization and a church that's so central to our lives. And somebody who leads an organization himself knows how difficult this season is. And I just feel like they have gone and done a great job above and beyond in so many different ways and done things with such excellence and consistency and grace. And so I'm grateful. So I would encourage us uh, as we walk through this time as a church, I would encourage us to do two things. One, be really grateful And two, to be really gracious um, because this is all of our first pandemic, right? And so we're all uh, figuring this out together. So, well, I have been asked to speak on the fall because we are in the series on the fall. And so... um, As I was preparing, I was reminded of something that happened probably about 12 years ago. I was in a staff meeting upstairs in what was our office at that point. And downstairs, as we were all gathered around uh, for our staff meeting downstairs, the door opened and you're like, who was that? Because we're all here. And then I heard a voice of my, at that time, three-year-old son, I believe, um, and his name is Ian. And he says, daddy, sorry about your Bible. Well, that's not how you want to be greeted. Sorry about your Bible. I mean, you need to understand, like, my Bible is my prized possession. Like, if somebody told me, you know, anyways, it is my prized possession. Because how many people know, like, you learn where things are at on the page of your Bible, right? Like, so it's like, okay, it's on the left-hand side, about two-thirds of the way. It's right there. Yeah, I mean, so my Bible is my prized possession. So I'm like, what happened? Well, what I found out was he had ripped the first three chapters of my Bible out of my Bible. So now it's like a loose-leaf notebook, right? It's, like it's got these three pages. And I'm thinking, out of all of the three chapters you could have pulled out of the Bible, you could not have pulled out three more consequential chapters. I mean, in, in many ways, he pulled out the first half of my Bible, right? Because with without the first three chapters of your Bible, you don't understand the rest of it. You must understand the first three chapters of the Bible, because from chapters 4 all the way to the end of Revelation is about... Um, what God is doing to restore what he intended. And then what happened? Well, that's the chapter we're going to look at today. What happened? And here's what we're going to find out, that what happened isn't just past tense, but it's about what happens. And so um, we're going to look at that today. And what we're going to realize is that the same issues that were present in the temptations uh, of Adam and Eve in the garden are the same issues we face when we face temptation today. So we're going to deconstruct the first sin, if you will, the temptation, and then what we're going to do is look at how they are evident and apparent in our own journeys with God as well. And so if you will, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to actually read four verses from chapter 2 to set the table, and then we'll read 10 verses from chapter 3. But Um, Chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 9. I'm going to read verse 16 and 17, and then verse 25. So, verse 9 says this The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So we get this context of uh, where Adam and Eve were. They were surrounded by, in this beautiful garden surrounded by wonderful trees that have bountiful fruit on them. And the garden has rivers running through it. They were living in paradise. They were literally surrounded by the goodness of God, by his provision, by his uh, blessing, by his grace. Then they had relationship with him. They had perfect relationship with each other. They were at harmony with creation. They were living in perfection. It's what the Jewish people called shalom. If I were to give you a definition of shalom, it would simply be this. The way things ought to be. The way things God intended them to be. With us having relationship with him. With us living at peace with each other. With us at peace with ourselves. They were naked and they felt no shame. And then ultimately with us at peace with our environment. Shalom. So this is the context. This is uh, the backdrop for what we are going to read. And we're going to look at what happened. So let's look at chapter 3. Here they are living in the goodness of God and his blessing, his provision, his grace. And it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not even touch it or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from, eat, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So what we're going to do is we are going to deconstruct this first temptation and look at it, what are the issues underneath this temptation and realize that they are the same issues we face as we face temptation in the world as well. So it starts in verses uh, 1 through 5 where, where there's this dialogue between Eve and the serpent and, and here's what the serpent says. The first thing he says is, did God really say It's got this bit of condescension and this mocking sense to, really, did God, would he really, did he really say that? Would he really say something like that? And what the enemy is trying to do, he's trying to create this bit of skepticism about the goodness of God. He's trying to move the conversation to his playing field, which is um, he's wanting to focus on the one prohibition rather than on the divine blessing that they're surrounded by. I mean, it's a divine yes in creation. They're just one prohibition. Of course, that's the place that the enemy wants to go into the one prohibition. And so, did God really say? Did God really say? And what does Eve respond with? Oh, no, no, we can eat of the trees other than this one tree and we can't touch it either, which is just a a little addition. God didn't say that you couldn't touch it, but just a little addition. So you kind of sense maybe she's starting to see God a little more strict than, than was the case. But really what is more consequential is what she didn't say. What she probably should have said is something like this. Are you out of your mind? This is Eden. We're living in paradise. (laughs) Look at all that he gave us. And if he told us not to eat of the one tree, of course we're not going to eat of it. Look, he's done nothing but good to us. He, he's been nothing but good. And he, who are we to question? He's the one who created it all. He's the one who designed it. What are, you, are you kidding me? Of course, this is paradise. But she doesn't say that, does she? And then, of course, the serpent follows up by just no more subtlety. He's, he's coming right out, and he's saying, no, he, he said that, that you shouldn't eat of it because he knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. In other words, he doesn't, he, there's no more subtlety. He's saying this, God is not, not out for your good. He's trying to withhold something from you. And this is a question that we face every time we face temptation is this question, is God trying to keep good for me or good from me? And you'll have to answer that question when you come to a place of temptation. Is God trying to maintain good for me or is he trying to keep good from me? in this command or in what he's asking me to do. Now, something you need to understand is this, that God is not just against stuff. He's for something that causes him to be against something. In other words, God is for shalom. He's for creation being as it was intended to be. He's for flourishing of people. He's fl- for flourishing of culture. He's for flourishing of creation. And because he's so for, he's against certain things that destroy that. Um, in fact, I like the definition that Cornelius Plantica has for sin. It's this. He calls sin the vandalizing of shalom. If you want a good definition of sin, it, it vandalizes shalom. What God intended is vandalized by shalom. I, as I was thinking about this, I thought of... Um, a a joint like I have a shoulder that's not so great from many years of sports going to carnivals and seeing how fast I can throw a ball you know and just I don't know if you guys remember those games and throwing it as fast as I could the first throw and anyways my shoulder's a little bit messed up but my shoulder as it was designed in the socket with the tendons with the muscles operates in shalom okay assume my shoulder's not it operates in shalom and so if I go out and shoot a basketball or throw a ball or spike a volleyball, it, it's it got shalom because it's as it was intended to be. It's in the socket, all the support around it. Now, imagine my shoulder gets dislocated and I pull it out of socket and then I go play sports. I go Throw a ball as hard as I can. I I go shoot a ball or spike a ball. What's happening every time I move it as it's dislocated? What? The tendons are being stretched and torn. The muscles are being ripped. The bone is grinding on itself. And the point is, is that is a picture of sin. Sin dislocates and causes the shalom that was intended to not be there. And now as we operate outside of it, it it destroys things because that's not as it was intended. Are you guys getting the picture? Well, let's talk about what this looks like. Let me give a couple commands. Um, How about the command of the Sabbath? If you ignore the Sabbath, it will dislocate things in your life. It will dislocate your walk with God. It will dislocate what you think your life is really about. It will dislocate your relationships because they will be neglected. It will dislocate your health because you will think that you're a machine and you will be ground down. It will bring dislocation in your life if you ignore his commands. How about forgiveness? If you don't obey the command to forgive, it will bring dislocation into your life. It will dislocate your heart in some ways where your heart will experience brokenness and bitterness. It will bring the dislocation of bitterness into your heart. It will bring the dislocation of broken relationships into your life because you ignored God's command. Here's the thing. Many times we will hit moments in our lives where we do not understand how if we violated this command, it will cause shalom not to happen, that it will vandalize shalom. We won't necessarily understand. But what do we do in those moments? We obey anyways. Why? Because God knows. He knows how sin impacts people, culture, and creation. And here's the fact. There's certain things that a lifetime, I heard this said recently, there are certain truths that a lifetime is not long enough to prove. And there are certain sins that when we look in the near term, we don't see all the ramifications, but in the long term, in God's infinite wisdom, he knows where it heads for people, culture, and creation. And so what do you do when you don't understand how it would vandalize Shalom? Here's what you do. You obey anyways. I mean, that's when you really find out if you're obeying or if you're just agreeing, right? So I have a question for you. Will you trust that God is really good and that his commands are to preserve good versus withhold good? Will you trust him well the second issue after the trust issue that we see is the issue of authority that we face in temptation you know it's it says in verse 5 for God knows this is um, what the serpent says to the woman for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil um well, what does that mean? They already have an intellectual knowledge of good and evil because God told them it's good to eat of all the other trees. It's evil to eat of this tree, okay? So they already have the intellectual knowledge. I agree with D.A. Carson and his understanding of this. He says this, that this isn't about um, an intellectual knowledge. This is about the ability to establish what is good. Right and wrong, to establish what is good and evil. In other words, you can be like God and you can be the arbiter of what is good and evil then, if you just eat it. And so, what is that question is who will be the authority? And of course, what we see is this we see that they ate of the, of the fruit and it inverted the order that God intended. And so now God has been pushed to the side and, and humanity comes to the center and says, We will be the authority. We will be the authority. And as I thought about this, I was reminded of an illustration that I read years ago about a kite. Imagine a, a kite that is soaring up in the wind and it looks down at this, the, the string that, that is attached to it and thinks, Man, if I could just get rid of this string. Think about how much higher I could go. Think how I could soar. And It looks down and, thinks, and it thinks that the string is limiting its freedom and limiting its flourishing. But what do we know? We know that if the string was cut, what would happen? What do we know? It would, it would plummet to the ground, right? Because the string isn't what is holding it back. The string is actually what is holding it up. And, and that's a picture of our lives, that we are meant to live under God's authority, that when we live in his authority, then it actually holds us up. It allows us to soar. It allows us to flourish in this False, false idea that if we cut the string of his authority, then we'll be able to soar is actually it's the inverse. What happens is we plummet. Imagine, what else would you look to for, uh, to be your authority? If you got rid of God as your authority, and then as a derivative, of his word as your authority. Where, where else would you go? Would you go to your emotions? Because how many people know? Like you can feel really right about something and about 10 minutes later feel like, ah, oh, that wasn't so right, right? How many people know emotions are not a good basis of authority? Would you agree with that? All right, yeah. Um, would you look to culture and whatever pop culture in the moment says is, is right? Would you look to that as being a, 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 the source of your th- authority to tell you what is right and wrong, good and evil? Because here's what we know. We know that what is right today or wrong today, give it about 20 years Right? For some of us who have gray hair or no hair, whatever your destiny may be. I don't know. What's mine? Uh, Anyways, uh, we know that culture changes. And it's not going to define good and evil the same way. So what is the other option? Oh, here's an option. How about you be your own authority, your own intellect, That you will be the one who distills all the ramifications short-term and long-term for any action. What about that? You'll be the epicenter for all theology, psychology, sociology, ethics, justice, history. You will take all of the disciplines of the intellectual pursuit. You'll pull them all together. You'll be the epicenter and you will pull it together and decide what is good and what is evil. How many people say that they're smart enough to do that? Yes, I see no hands. (laughs) Very well. That's true, because none of us would have the hubris to say we're capable of that. So then the question becomes, well, where else are you going to go? Who will be the authority? When you face a moment of temptation, it is really also a moment of who is your authority or what is your authority? And of course, Adam and Eve wanted to be their own authority. Who will be the authority of your life? And then finally, the last issue of temptation is the issue of deception. I mean, it's interesting that the the, the serpent's first moment of deception is this. You won't die if you eat of the fruit. In other words, there aren't any ramifications for your sin. There's no aftermath. There's only good to be found. I remember when I was a kid growing up, I, uh, my dad took my brother and I to the Wisconsin Dells. And so, we. I, I don't know if you're from the Midwest, but if you're from the Midwest, you've heard of the Wisconsin Dells probably. And it's uh, a place where lots of touristy things to do. You can ride the ducks. You're like, what's a duck? Um, a duck is one of these uh, cars that become boats. He's like, it's a car, but no, it's a boat. You know, And you're like, and then you, so you ride down the road, and then you get in the water, and you pull. Anyways, you can ride the ducks. You go to the Wisconsin Dells. And so we are so excited. We're going to the Wisconsin Dells for a week. This is going to be awesome. And my dad had found a brochure about a resort that, that we could stay at. And this was, you got to understand, this was before websites and like reviews and stuff. You know, Yelp didn't exist and TripAdvisor didn't exist. And so we were so excited. We we're talking about all the things that the brochure listed about, you know, when we get there, what's going to be like. They have an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Come on now, at your own resort, An Olympic-sized swimming pool. And so we're like, whoa, that's going to be awesome. And we get there and it took about three minutes to figure out that the brochure may not have been the best representation of the resort. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Checking in, we see the pool, and we're like, okay, that may be for like a preschool Olympics, you know? I'm not sure that's certified Olympic size. And then there was this lamp that was kind of hanging over, and uh, my dad being the funny guy he is, he's like, "Look, they're having so much fun here. They're swinging from the chandeliers, you know. <laughs> it's like it's the chandeliers all broken down." And we'll just say we didn't finish the week at that hotel. We spent, I think, a couple days. Why do I tell you that story? Because that brochure was full of the gloss and deception. I mean, it wasn't real. It made it look better than it really was. And I. I I think about this passage where it says, oh, but the food was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She saw the gloss of the sin. What she didn't see was the goodness of God in that moment. What she didn't see was the darkness of her rebellion and the implications. I've thought many times, like, what if she could have watched a YouTube video before she ate it? Like if she could have just pulled out her cell phone, well, you know, the Apple cell phone, that'd be ironic, but um, she could pull out her cell phone and pull up YouTube and saw all that would happen after if she would have seen the, the, the alienation, if she would have seen the shame, if she had seen the destruction, if she would have seen the ramifications, she would have never eaten it. But the gloss was so strong. It was airbrushed. It was edited. And how often If we would just slow down and pull back the gloss, pull back the airbrushed, and take a look at what sin really is, because here's what I know and here's what you know. Sin always has an aftermath. It always has an aftermath. So here's a question next time you face temptation. Temptation which will be this week, we all face temptation steadily. Will we just slow down and pull back the layers? Remove the gloss and see what's really going on. Um, What were the ramifications for this? They were cataclysmic, weren't they? I mean, what do we see in, in the passage? We see that they're quickly covering themselves with fig leaves and and. Maybe you didn't know this. I didn't necessarily know this. But fig leaves were like the largest leaves in Canaan during that time. So in other words, they were a good choice, right? They, 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 they picked these fig leaves. Why? Because now shame had, had inundated their lives. And it was no longer safe to be vulnerable. Because the impact of sin, shame came. And we don't use leaves anymore. We're, we're a little more sophisticated than that. We use stuff like curated social media accounts. Um, degrees. Business cards, financial statements. What else happened? Well, they hide from God. They know He's coming and they get scared and they hide from Him. It's the first time fear is mentioned in the Bible that in their dislocation and their walk with him, now there's a fear that starts to grip them. And so we hide from each other and we hide from God. But here's the good news. God comes into the wreckage. God comes into ground zero and he comes seeking them. Isn't it good news that we have a God who comes to seek us in our sin? Isn't that good news? In fact, he's such a seeking God that, that the Bible says that he was incarnated and came as Jesus. And then when we find out what the mission statement of Jesus was, it says this, that he came to seek and to save the lost, that he came on a seek and restore mission. And of course, that, that mission lands him on the cross, paying the price for the promised ramifications of our sin you will surely die so that we could have the intended blessing of life and that ultimately one day everything that god intended would be restored that Shalom would one day, that everything would be put back into location and operate as he intended it to operate. Thank God that we have a God who seeks in the midst of our sin. And so the next time that you're facing temptation, I want to encourage you So look to the cross, and when you look at the cross, tell me, can you trust that one, the one who went to the cross? Can you trust that he is for your good? That he isn't withholding good from you, but he seeks good for you. The cross answers the the trust question. And then when you think about the authority question, I want to encourage you, look to the cross. That's the one you submit to, the one who gave it all for you and then rose from the dead victorious, showing that he is the one who's authoritative over life victorious over death itself that's the one you submit to that's the one you surrender all to as we sung earlier isn't that good news so next time temptation comes and you face these issues that i mean they converge on you so rapidly so quickly just just slow down and deconstruct can you trust him yes whether it be his moral law that that you need to trust even when you may not always understand or whether it be something he's asking you to do in obedience to him you can trust him will you say no you're going to be my authority where else would I go who else has the words of life will you stand Heavenly Father, we are so, so grateful that you are a God who seeks us in the midst of our sin. For where would we be without a God who seeks sinners? Thank you. And God, I pray as we close with this song that you would Give us grace to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust you more. That you would give us hearts that are humble before you and submitted to you as our king, our good, benevolent king. And Lord, help our eyes to see in moments of temptation what is actually true and not fall for deception. Thank you for seeking us. Thank you for this journey of restoration that we are on as a result of your grace and the Spirit's power in our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord.